0: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. LitBreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult romance, and other book genres. That's the LitBreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, <laughs> what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, Right. ladies
0: and gentlemen, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is your podcast entertainment selection. This is two writerly people on the telephone. Thank you for being here. It's good to be with you. My name is Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. Uh, What is going on? Well, AWP is over. What is it? The Association of Writing Professionals. Do I have that right? The big annual writers conference. Uh, It happened in Boston last weekend. It unfolded. Thousands of people. Uh, I did not go. But, of course, my Twitter feed uh, was awash in AWP-related tweets for the duration. And then all this week, there has been the requisite AWP wrap-up-related essays and blog entries and so on and so forth. So, uh, for those of you listening who aren't up to your neck in the publishing business... Uh, AWP is a big trade show and, uh, publishing related conference type situation. Like there's panel discussions and live readings and there's parties and so on and so forth. And, uh, it's like nerd prom. I've heard it described that way. I think that's fairly accurate. It happens once a year, writers from all over the country, uh, possibly even the world, they descend on a particular city and it changes every year. And then they spend roughly seventy two hours in each other's general vicinity and uh for my own part, I've only been to one a w p in my whole you know my whole life. I went last year in twenty twelve uh in Chicago for about thirty six hours, and that was it and it you know it was overwhelming for me, and I talked about it on this program. Uh, my experience was I just sort of walked around these uh large vast conference halls handing out flyers and uh talking to people. And uh that's about it. You know, I found it uh, very tiring, but you know also somewhat interesting and entertaining. And what I notice, uh, you know, in watching social media and the blogosphere in the uh writing and publishing world is that AWP related posts tend to fall under one of two categories, possibly three categories. People either tend to make a public spectacle of their good attitude by saying things like, you know, I love AWP, I love writers, I love being a writer, I love uh, meeting my internet friends, uh, IRL, I'm happy to be here among writers, and so on. Uh, And then on the other side of the ledger, uh, you have uh, the haters The uh, satirists the embittered outcasts the people who think AWP is a brazenly stupid exercise and who are not shy about letting you know and so like these people tend to make snarky jokes or to uh, you know be ironical and make a public display of their bewilderment over the whole thing wondering aloud why anyone in their right mind would want to go expressing uh, vexation over all things related to AWP, including the events, fundamental definition and purpose. So I got several, and then I guess the third type of person is the person who, uh, you know, when it comes to public expressions, uh, related to this, the third type of person is the person who wants to have it both ways. Or who sort of, you know, tries to find middle ground. So I got several emails from listeners last week asking if I was planning to go. If I was going to be there. And my response uh, generally was the same across the board. I just tried to be uh, plain spoken about it. Maybe a little judicious. I basically said, no, I'm not going. Uh, I decided not not to do it this year. And that's pretty much where I left it. But uh, to be honest with you, I don't know if I'll ever go again. I, I truly don't know. Maybe I will. I don't know. I have no plans. Once might have been enough, but that's just me. You know, I don't feel any, let me, let me, let me put it to you this way. I don't feel any real pressing need to cast judgment uh, on the thing or to cast judgment on the people who decide to go. But what I wonder is, uh, do people judge me for not going? Like, uh, you know, I have this podcast. I'm a writer. I run the NervousBreakdown.com, which uh, incidentally just launched a brand new design, TNB 5.0. It looks very nice. It's very sexy. You should check it out, the NervousBreakdown.com. So, uh, yeah, so there's a part of me that does wonder, am I being a bad sport by not going? Am I being foolish? Am I tragically antisocial? Am I shooting myself in the foot by not being more explicitly participatory in the writing community at large and taking advantage of networking opportunities presented by this event, shaking hands and mixing with my colleagues? I don't know. These kinds of events never, uh, draw me book fairs. I don't know why. Like, what's my problem? <laughs> uh, you want to know the truth? I, I don't feel a strong sense of belonging. I don't think. And I don't mean to be like a little whiny bitch about it. Like, you know, I'm not expecting anyone to like roll out the red carpet or anything. Uh, you know, mostly I just feel like I'm in my apartment <laughs> I'm a man in Los Angeles with a computer. I feel peripheral is what I'm saying. And like I said in a recent episode, I don't know exactly where I fit in or if I fit in or if I want to fit in or if there's even actually anything to fit into. So I'm overthinking this, which is all I pretty much ever do, especially on this show is publicly overthink things. You know, like, do I have a bad attitude just because I don't want to go? Is that what a bad attitude is? Not, not going. I mean, I barely even thought about it to be honest. I like, unless I was looking at Twitter this past weekend or something like that, like, and it's not like I sat around bad mouthing it either or patting myself on the back for not being there. Uh, I just didn't go. I don't know what else to tell you. I did not feel the urge. It's just not my thing. And so I guess my question is, should it be my thing? Does it have to be my thing? Am I missing something? And you know, if it's your thing, that's great. I have no problem with that. I have no problem uh, with your thing and I just don't want you to have a problem with my thing. (laughs) So maybe, you know, maybe I should go next year. Maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe I will uh, undergo a, I don't know, transformation. Maybe I should do a live show of this podcast at AWP. But, you know, with all the gear and everything, it seems cumbersome to me. Am I lazy? Do I need uh, an adrenaline shot to my sternum region? Do I need, as my mother likes to say, uh, an attitude adjustment? (sighs) Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Tim Horvath. I'm very pleased to have him here on the uh, show. He's got a new story collection, a red hot new story collection out. It is generating buzz, it is earning rave reviews. It is called Understories, and it is available now from Bellevue Literary Press. So. Uh, let's get to it. Let's move this thing forward. This is my conversation with uh, Mr. Tim Horvath, who, incidentally, I-, I believe, was at AWP. I believe he was there, if my social media feed is correct. So here he is, Tim Horvath, the author of Understories.
1: I am uh, in New Hampshire, a uh, seacoast area, Stratum in particular, which is. Not far from Portsmouth. That's the closest uh, <clears throat> metropolitan area, I guess. If you if you wanted to exaggerate its uh, stature, and uh, I'm in my office right now, so there's there's uh, it's kind of like being in a in a in a swirl of, of papers and, and books.
0: Uh, are you one of those people? Are you one of those people who's got a really messy workspace? or Are you someone who's got like every pen and pencil like lined up? parallel
1: um they, they the former definitely it's it's a maelstrom in here basically okay <laughs> um, okay
0: so but I, I should i have to interrupt because i've gone over this like my wife is a really messy person uh i'm not like hyper neat but i'm definitely neater than she is and like my desk my place i mean i've had people comment when they've come over they're like wow your house is really clean or whatever you know and i don't know i like to keep things orderly and so I was reading uh, something in the New York Times, I think it was, or you know, some newspaper, and it was like this study of people who have like messy workspaces and how they actually have more flexible minds. Have I talked about this on this show? But anyway, it's a credit to you that you're messy, and, and probably a detriment to me that I'm maybe more neat.
1: <laughs> I, I I mean, I I don't know. I I do envy sometimes people who 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 do have the the pens all lined up. I mean, and it's weird because I do have. Like I, I have these particularly finicky, fastidious habits when it comes to my actual writing, you know, like my my document and and the type of pen I use, and I mean I don't know. So it, it's kind of like this this coexistence of chaos and with with slights, you know, traces of order.
0: I guess. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the let's talk about the specifics. This is interesting. Like your document, what do you mean your document? Like it. A-
1: mm-hmm. Well, okay, so I have to. I write on on this really ridiculously old school computer. Um, it's a it's a laptop from the '90s, uh, a Fujitsu Lifebook 700 series, which probably doesn't mean anything to anybody. Um, and like recently, I, I had to get a new uh, AC electrical cord, and so I had to I had to call them to figure out like whether whether it could withstand the voltage. And, and, you know, they, they'd never heard of this serial number that I read off the bottom of their, their computer. You know, the Fujitsu people were like, no, that, that doesn't exist. <laughs> so so I've got this, you know, and I like it because its it's got this kind of like typewriterish feel to it. And that's what I grew up writing on. You know, I had an electric typewriter as a kid. And so, um, I don't know, I, I like the... I like to have something that that actually feels present to me, not like one of these laptops with the with the smooth smooth surface where you don't even know you're you're typing exactly and you want
0: to hear it you want it, you want it to be like percussive
1: yeah yeah i like i like the percussive element so how Definitely. old how
0: old are you may i ask if you if you were grew up writing on a typewriter
1: well i uh i'll be forty two in in august um forty no forty three Forty three. Already know, already so. trying
0: to already trying to hedge. I see what's going exactly. on. <laughs> exactly. who
1: knows how much I'm really hedging. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, when in August? I'm August first.
1: Oh man, we share a birthday. No shit. Holy shit. There we go. Wow. It's, it's a good All day. Right.
0: You and me and Absol- like, it's like Dom Delouise and Jerry Garcia. And,
1: <laughs> what, uh, what are we doing? Where are we meeting, man? <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> and uh, Herman Melville. Herman Melville also. <laughs>
1: That's right. Uh, yeah, no, there's those are some good uh some good combinations right there between Melville and Garcia.
0: Yeah. I'll take those. I mean, you know, Dom DeLuise is a bit of a stretch, but I like, I like, yeah. you, there, you know, yeah, I have some fun. And- I have some, I don't even know where my memories are coming from, but there were some fun Dom DeLuise moments in my childhood, you know, really? I don't know. Maybe was he on the Muppets or something.
1: <laughs> I, don't, I I think I missed out on the, <laughs> on the Dom DeLuise influence, Yeah. but you know, you can't choose who you're born on the same day as, right? So, you kind of have to embrace it. It's it's like your your horoscope or or something.
0: Well, and I feel like I mean it depends. I guess different people put very you know different amounts of stock into these kinds of things. But I always feel like, or I often feel like people. Uh, are quick to reach for like the cool person who was born on their birthday as like somehow being a signifier of their own existence and genetic makeup or something.
1: <laughs> and, and totally discount the, the, the uncool person, right? Oh, that's why I'm,
0: that's why I'm reaching for Dom DeLuise. I want
1: our I want... inner Dom DeLuise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Um So where were you born? Like, where are you from?
1: <clears throat> um, I'm actually from the Midwest. Uh, originally born in Ohio and then, you know, my first conscious years were in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. Oh yeah, and then uh, Dude, yeah, then my yeah. It's Go. so
0: it's so weird. I just got an email. I don't. I, I hate to keep interrupting, but uh, I just got an email from a listener saying that like I'm constantly talking to people. With like a tie to Indiana because I spent part of my childhood there, and like I had no idea. I want to put. I want to go on the record saying I had no idea Tim spent part of his youth in the Midwest.
1: This <laughs> <laughs> is not part of a pattern. No. I had no idea we had the same birthday. I mean. No. It sounds like a setup, but, it does. It does. um, yeah, I heard, uh, I was listening to the Christine Sneed, uh, interview and, and, you know, the fact that she spent some time there and that you had grown up there in Indianapolis. That was the big city for me when I was a kid, you know, I was in Bloomington, um, and so I still remember the the drive to Indianapolis, and yeah. it's like the you know the smokestack. When you pass the smokestack, you knew you were almost there. <laughs> it's <laughs> a symbolic. It's a cool. symbol or something. It's
0: it's not a big. I mean, like in downtown Indianapolis, you can like walk across in like fifteen minutes. I mean, it's, there's not much to it, you know. Hmm. It's grown up a lot, but I mean, it's like I guess I'm so used to like the, the like the insane sprawl of Los Angeles that when I when I right. wind up back in Indianapolis, it's like it's so contained and so manageable, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. I don't know. You know, I was a kid and so like my yard in Indiana was like, you know, the frontier also, you know, like I, I equate it with things that it obviously was, was, you know, as, as a landscape, it's much more, it was much more humble and much more contained and I've gone back, you know, and, I even did the thing where, you know, you can you can do Google Street View and you can see your childhood house and, and that kind of thing. And it's it's very it's like university housing, practically, you know, every there were students living down the street. But to me, it was like this this Arcadia, you know, um,
0: I think and, and how and this was like your early youth, like single digit years. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, right up to the age of 9, I guess.
0: See, I think that that, I mean, cuz I have similar feelings about my childhood in uh Wisconsin and I think back to that town and I just there's something I'm very nostalgic for it. Like there's something kind of wonderful about that and I, maybe maybe in those years like pre-adolescent years um you're more susceptible to that and then like, you know, cuz I always talk to people and I don't care where they're from, like 9 times out of 10 when they talk about like where they went to high school and the town that they grew up in they were dissatisfied or couldn't wait to get out, you know?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, uh, I think I, I was sort of like, this was a formative moment for me when I turned nine and my parents split up and we moved to Yonkers, New York, uh, you know, my mom and my brother and I, and, uh, I don't want to say, you know, I, 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 I really embraced New York, you know, and, uh, Yonkers is just outside the city so my dad was living in the city and so we used to you know go down there on weekends and and really got to know the city that way but at the time I can remember it was it was just this singularly traumatic experience of you know sort of being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, sort of feeling, you know. Well,
0: um, moving, moving is traumatic experience for a kid. I went through that, and that was like that's heavy, man. Your whole world is gone, you know.
1: Yeah. How old were you?
0: I was. I mean, almost the same age. I was probably ten. You know. So yeah. End of end of fifth grade, going into sixth.
1: Right. Yeah. See, so, and you know, I was so I started fourth grade at, at PS thirty in, in Yonkers, <clears throat> and it was just I can still remember, you know the 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 accents of, of New Yorkers to begin with, it, it was, it was something that, that, you know, I'll never quite get over was, was just like this harsh, this harsh sound, you know? Um, and, uh, but, but I, you know, I, I I really became a New Yorker, I guess, you know, and there's a part of me now having moved to New Hampshire that, that still feels like uh, I'm a relative newcomer here And, uh, you know, still still a New Yorker in many ways.
0: So what was the, I mean, like there was the adjustment period to New York, uh, you know, how long did it last? Like how long before you felt like it was home?
1: Um, I would say it was a few years. I mean, uh, you know, I I think, uh, I don't know, elementary school, you know, by the time I was in sixth grade, I, I was starting to adjust and stuff like, you know. I remember listening a lot to a lot of Howard Stern, Howard Stern show.
0: I'm a huge fan of Howard Stern, like to this day. I still listen to him almost every day.
1: Okay. Well, see, so you, you have, you have stayed loyal, Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but to me, uh, you know, to me, I I do remember when he was on, you know, in the afternoon rather than the morning and you know, my, uh, my neighbor would, would pick us up. We would carpool and she would, she would play Howard Stern when I was in fourth grade. And, uh, it's a good age for it. It's, yeah, I mean, that's when you're really, that's just <laughs> his, his target demographic. Right. <laughs> so, so, uh, you and, know, and, and, he, and, he, and like, it says it, something that I'm still there,
0: you know, like I'm still <laughs> completely ent- entertained.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, uh, so so that, you know, I mean, just being exposed to that and that voice and then, you know, like I said, spending time with my dad down in New York and then, you know, sort of being one of the few people from, from Yonkers who was really familiar with the city um, and, uh, you know, spending more time down there than a lot of my classmates. Um, you know, I started to identify myself as a as a real New Yorker, I guess, at that point.
0: So how far is Yonkers from New York by train?
1: By train, it was a half hour to Grand Central.
0: Oh, okay. So that's not that bad. See, isn't it interesting, though, that you can live in these little kind of satellite towns around the city? And it's sort of like when you live in Los Angeles, but you're a couple of miles away from the coast. Like, you can spend months and not see the ocean, even though it's right there, you know?
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, I mean, similarly with Yonkers, you know, um... And you know, I didn't. I didn't have a car. I was. I was totally reliant on on public transportation for a long time. And when I when I was a teenager, I I got into this habit of walking a lot. And I figured out that I could walk to New York. You know, I could walk to the Bronx. <laughs> this this was this was big discovery and exciting. And so I used to do that quite a bit. What is that? What does um, that entail?
0: Like how long? How long of a walk are we talking?
1: Probably you know a couple hours, maybe an hour to get down to to the border, and then you know jump I would on, stroll around the Bronx while I was there. So
0: and then just jump. Yeah, on the, could, you could jump on the subway. Or...
1: Well, no, I mean the subway wouldn't. Uh, the subways all end in the Bronx, ah. so you know I would I would get myself into a situation where I had a long walk back also. <laughs>
0: But that's good when you're a kid, I love that kind of stuff you know I'm thinking of like stand by me for some reason or something like that you can I remember having you know obviously different but similar kind of thing where you'd like we'd ride our bikes like an obnoxious distance to some place and it feels like some grand adventure when you're that age you know
1: yeah, absolutely and i kind of i kind of uh I miss that to some degree you know i I live here in New Hampshire well I was living in Exeter, which is a very walkable town, you know, sidewalks everywhere. And now I live someplace where you, you kind of have to drive to, to get to the next town. And, uh, I miss just being able to say, you know, I'm going to take a, a three hour walk, you know?
0: Yeah. City walks are good. I think like, I mean, like urban hiking or whatever, you know, just going for a long, and New York is great for that. Like I've done that every time I go there, I do that, you know, and it's like a, you know walk from like downtown all the way to like Central Park or whatever. I love doing that
1: totally yeah, I just uh, did that not long ago. I was down in in New York, and I walked across the Williamsburg bridge, which I hadn't done i think i I, I don't think I'd ever walked across that one um, and i was I had written this story about <clears throat> uh, where a friend of mine who uh, who I went to grad school with he used to he used to climb bridges in New York. Back sort of before nine eleven, and
0: uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not probably, that's probably frowned upon now. By the
1: it's way, it's so I think it's a little harder to, to do. Although I don't know, I, I don't know quite how it operated even back back then. You know how people got away with it exactly, but like, like
0: like kind of rock climbing with like ropes and carabiners and stuff.
1: He used to do this. You know, he climbed the Brooklyn Bridge with without equipment. Jesus. Um, which was the, yeah, which just, you know, it's beyond mind boggling to me. I'm, I'm afraid of heights and
0: no, no, you see, know. this is the thing. Cause I used to say that I was afraid you're afraid of falling. That's the thing. <laughs>
1: <It's> the, okay. <laughs> just, <laughs> a techni-
0: <laughs> just a technicality, but you know, right.
1: Okay. I can buy that.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so he would just climb these things like without ropes and he's clearly like some sort of, uh, extremely strong and then like mentally tough, <laughs> like I don't understand like there's a there was a 60 minutes thing on some guy who like free climbed uh in um it's like El Cap in uh, Yosemite, you know like that big flat rock face in Yosemite and they right, actually they right. actually filmed him doing it and I'm just like people who can do that sort of thing are on another level and they're just completely insane as far as I'm concerned but Um, regardless regardless of what it is, if you're climbing something from a a height that could kill you (laughs) and you're not,
1: and
0: you have (laughs) no, you have no ropes, like that is, that is crazy to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and there's one thing about New Hampshire. I mean, there, there are, there are mountains here, you know, I mean, there are mountain climbing opportunities here. I haven't availed myself of them (laughs) all that much, (laughs) but I do, I mean, I have had some you know, I I did uh, climb Mount Katahdin, at the end of the Adirondack Trail, in uh, Appalachian. or Appal- Appalachian Trail rather, um, back in uh, you know when I was just out of college, and uh, you know I, I'm really glad I did it. I mean that was that was also sort of a you know a, a pivotal experience for me, um, but it, it it kind of snuck up on me. I didn't know what I was getting into as I was doing it, you know. Um, I didn't know how arduous it was going to be. And yeah, that, that sense that you're sort of above where you can sort of see your mortality, <laughs> um, lying beneath you down there on, on, on some, you know, in some ravine. I mean, it's really, uh, I try to avoid situations like that, I guess, <laughs> but
0: you don't like to stare at your own mortality. It's just not as, as, <laughs> as recreation.
1: As, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe maybe on the page, but... Right.
0: Yeah. Well, but, you know, it's interesting. Like, it's I mean, I, I, I hiked the Appalachian Trail in Maine. I didn't get to do Katahdin because mm. I, I had my dog with me. Um, okay. Just out of college, and I was doing... The, I did the southern half of the trail, and then I hiked the whole yep. state of Maine, and it was beautiful. Um, but it makes me think of, uh, more broadly speaking, with regard to writing. Like, there are a lot of writers and creative people but you know writers in particular who walk uh as a complement to the writing work like uh, Henry David Thoreau I want to say I read somewhere walked like 4 hours a day which yeah seems like a great yeah. luxury but I can kind I, I don't know it makes sense to me that you have to go like move and see stuff and there's something connected between the two at least for me because I walk a lot you know
1: that's yeah i mean i think just the, the sheer rhythm of it um, and the sort of you know the, the propulsion, the forward momentum, I think is is something that you want in, in your writing, um, at least in in some cases and some stretches of, of of stories. And so I think and there's something too about you know on a long walk you sort of lose track of time and you know you you, you get into your head in a way that's I don't know it's so impractical that that I think it's it becomes, it becomes, you know, it becomes easier to tap into that aesthetic thing that you want that's not practical.
0: Yeah. And, I, and the thing too, is like, there's something I, I can't sleep very well, typically, if I haven't walked or done some sort of exercise. And I think like, it, it helps me burn excess mental energy. You know, it's like, yeah. that's what it does for me. And like, I, you know, I need to be like, I need to be depleted somehow in order to even sleep.
1: Now, do you do you have a set route that you do or Yeah, do you I mean, I live shake it up.
0: I live near uh the hills in Los Angeles, so there's like mountains and canyons and stuff that you can hike up into that are relatively close. So I'll do that. Yeah. But, or I'll just, you know, or I'll just uh, you know, put my dog on his leash and just like walk around for an hour or two, you know, and, and mm. right around the city and that can be interesting too, but
1: you Yeah. Know,
0: I try to do something in the morning to it helps me wake up and it's a good way to start the day if I can fit it in.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, we have. Uh, I'm, you know, probably a quarter mile from the Great Bay here, uh, giant estuary, in New Hampshire, and uh, <clears throat> so I will walk down there quite a bit. You know, it's sort of a great destination because I'm just walking on these uh, tree lined streets next to houses, and then all of a sudden it just sort of opens up, and you know, it's 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 astounding to me that I live so close to to this this great body of water and you know, everything about it, the smells and the, you know, the the sounds of it lapping there. And so it's, I think it's good. You know, I like to, I like to have a destination that's kind of a little bit loose and I find myself going back there again and again on my walks.
0: Well, it's, New Hampshire is beautiful. Like that whole part of the country to me is like beautiful, uh, obviously with the mountains and the nature and everything, but it also strikes me as being home to, an unusually high concentration of, uh, sane people or there's something, maybe I'm totally wrong, but I just remember being up there and there's just something nice about it and the houses and everyone's like wearing LL bean and seems fit or something, you know? know?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's New Hampshire is pretty, it's pretty great. I mean, uh, you know, I, I sort of feel like I've, it's, you know, we're, we're an hour from Boston here, so it's not like, it's not, you know it's not all that rustic, but we're also an hour from the white mountains and you know I'm ten miles from the ocean and there's a there's a cool vibe around here i mean there's a lot of kind of uh you know uh farming uh the farmers' market is is has just exploded in the past few years since we've moved here and uh you know there's a lot of new breweries springing up i just uh this place the throwback brewery um that you know just started this past year i guess and uh you know they they did this beet beer recently and i don't like beets but like you know this this is amazing stuff and the beets came from a local farm and i know the guy that grew them and you know it's sort of like the the interconnectedness of of everything and and uh the ways in which people are, are, are sort of, you know, interested in community and, and doing things locally. There's a, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a good vibe.
0: That's cool. That sounds great. Um, so before I forget, because you were, we, I was, we were talking earlier about like your transition into New York and your childhood. Like I want to like, yeah. I want to learn a little bit more about that as we kind of trace this line. Okay. Um, but you know, with regard to writing, you know, like, was this something you were doing, as an adolescent, what were you like when you hit like your, you know, high school years?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, in, in, in high school writing was, was my thing, you know, English was my, was my class. Um, and uh, you know, I had this amazing <clears throat> set of teachers uh, in high school and one in particular, his name was Morrow Jones. And uh, you know, he, he, he did this creative writing class that I sort of emulate in my own teaching to this day to some degree and he would he had like you know 30 some odd exercises and you would you would do a different exercise every couple of days in the class um and he was you know not not a typical high school teacher i think he had his phd and and you know had studied uh old english and middle english and so you know he would he could, he could quote from Beowulf, you know, in, in the right accent, um, and, you know, proper pronunciation. So, uh, yeah, so I got into, I got into writing then and, you know, I went through the, the, you know, sort of cliched stereotypical Kerouac phase. Um, that was, that, was like your, that
0: was like the early hero is that like a was on the road a book that like you know sort of opened you up for up, opened you up to you know wanting to write
1: yeah, definitely, definitely I can, yeah, I can remember writing this this piece for a contest you know why why do why do you write why do why write and it was it was just a a, a ripoff of Kerouac, the reasons that I wrote um, it wasn't a bad ripoff. I I did him justice I think. But yeah, so, you know, uh that was that was a big early influence and I had a, <clears throat> roll a, a roll of computer paper, which isn't really a roll because it was folded, you know, like a stack, and I ran that through the typewriter and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know <laughs> where my scroll is, but it's it never turned into on the road. It will, um, it will
0: one day be kept among your papers by a esteemed library somewhere.
1: Exactly. Or, or I'll be staring at my own mortality from, like, you know, <laughs> 200 feet up at it. <laughs>
0: um, so what about your folks? Are they writerly people?
1: Uh, my dad is a, is a real – yeah, I mean, they're both bibliophiles. My dad is a real bibliophile in this uh, to the point of, of you know uh, – verging on the pathological. um, He would, uh, you know, he would go to the Strand bookstore in New York and uh, just fill two bags with with books, you know, um, every time, you know, this would be maybe a couple times a week. And uh, so, you know, I grew up, like I said, I I would spend weekends with him. And so what did he do? um and he was he was a book editor for for a long time that's actually how we wound up in in indiana he was uh, editing at indiana university press but then he wound up in new york um uh, being an administrative assistant um at uh, columbia and various other places and so he was you know his reading was was purely after a certain point a labor a labor of love and um you know every, every birthday, every, every holiday, that's what he would get. You know, he would get us books. Um, and I can remember when he actually, he, he actually remarried and, and had to move in and, and downscale and, and get rid of, you know, probably five to between five and 10,000 books. And I can remember <clears throat> helping him, you know, we kind of went through the, the stacks together uh, to try to whittle them down. And it was, uh, it was just kind of profound, I guess, father, son bonding moment in terms of, you know, um, how, how callous can we be, you know, um, and, uh, you know, trying to sort of tame the beast that, that these, uh, his book collection had become. That's a basically. lot of books. There's a lot of books. Yeah
0: so did you i mean i I'm assuming you took at least a few for yourself
1: oh yeah i helped i helped with the with the the whittling process definitely um but you know he's uh you know he's he's got it down just space wise he he lives out in eugene oregon now um and just because of the size of their house and like i said he he got remarried and uh so that kind of forced him to to be much more orderly and vigilant about, okay, what's, what do I need to own? Um, and so he's got the collection down. It's, it's, uh, is it like,
0: is it it like hoarder ish? I mean, is it like you walk into his, when you walked into his bachelor pad, was it like, like you couldn't even move? It was just all books.
1: It it was, yes, it was. And, uh, (laughs) what do you think that is? Why? Well,
0: I mean, just like you said, it was like the, the the bibliophilia or whatever was almost pathological. Like, how serious are you talking? Like, is this a guy that, like, every waking moment has his nose in a book when he's, when he's um, like, doing something else?
1: No, I mean, he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't, uh, not to the exclusion of other pursuits and interests, you know. I mean, he was also a big walker and, you know, uh, he cooked, you know, I mean, he he had a day job. So, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't somebody who, who lived entirely in books, but I think they, they were certainly his, his uh, a place where he felt most at home, I guess. Um, And, you know, he's not somebody who um, sort of, you know, he's not somebody who, who aspired to be a writer per se. He was just a fan, you know, just a, a really great reader, I would say.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask if he if he ever tried to write anything of his own. You don't think he harbored any secret like literary ambitions or doesn't like are you gonna find like ten thousand pages of journaling, you know,
1: eventually? <laughs> you know, he um he has written some things recently. Um some some poems that that he shared with me. But, you know, I think again it's more something he does he's done out of just you know the the joy of it there's there's no ambition particularly to you know find an agent and a publisher and and go that route you know i think it's it's just natural if you've if you if you're that much of a reader to you know to it emanates at some point as writing
0: well, he, he, uh, he, must be yeah, so, yeah. he must be so excited about uh, your publishing success, right? I mean, to have his son publishing books has got to be great for a guy who loves books that much.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's he's been a, a huge ardent supporter, and uh, you know, just a, a big fan, and even uh, you know, even in store for stories that are about father-son relationships that are somewhat you know um, troubled and and complex um And even when there are father characters in my stories who who aren't necessarily you know um, above reproach, I think he's he's been really just awesome about um, being able to 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 see the good in it and take that away
0: well, yeah, I mean it's like you it, it can always get dicey with family reading your stuff because. Whether it's the, whether it's like legitimately there or not, I think people can sometimes tend to see themselves in your work, you know. Um, right. And I don't know. I think I've heard I've heard stories both ways. I've heard stories where like family members get really angry, and there are like even you know ruptures in relationships. But that's the exception rather than the rule, is in my experience. Like usually people give uh, artistic latitude. I mean, you have to, especially if you've read books, you have to understand that somebody's going to be. You know, creating characters and writing fictions, but that are derived from some deep psychological terrain, and you know, there's different degrees of how explicit it can be. But I don't know. You, know, you have to. Well, well, you have to be. You have to be able to go there, and you have to be willing to go there. Otherwise, it's probably going to mean that your work isn't as good as it can be.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and I'm sure it's different for for people writing memoir too. I don't envy people who are writing memoirs about their families. You know. Um, because that's that's a whole other level of of sort of you know re- revealing things and and you know t- testing your I guess your your willingness to be candid uh, you know um, so it, at least minor fictions and you know I mean there's 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 a certain I guess safe harbor in that. Yeah. You know?
0: Well, yeah, you have that, like, you know, it depends how thinly veiled your fictions are, you know, like <laughs> right. uh, some people, like, you know, write very autobiographically and others are really inventing, you know, like where do, where do you think you fall?
1: Um, I think, uh, you know, I mean, I've never been to a, a city that. You know shows filmed on every wall in in the city you know or or a city you know which is obsessed with food to the to the point where they you know only have restaurants so I mean some of my stories are obviously more you know rooted in 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 fictive i guess unrealities but i I could probably go line for line through the book and and pinpoint some you know, aspect of reality, some moment, some memory, some, you know, incident and, and, you know, sort of break it down, which I won't do. <laughs> yeah, but right. Don't worry.
0: That sounds hellish. I mean, I mean not, <laughs> yeah. not, not even for me, but for you, you know, for anybody, right. anybody who writes fiction to have to dissect it like that would be excruciating. Uh, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, but it, it makes me think of like uh thematic concerns you know when you talk about uh your work and then also with relationship to the move from indiana to yonkers and your trips to new york city uh, because you you seem to have um a fascination with cities (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know that kind of (laughs) recurs i
1: think that's not a stretch
0: yeah it recurs in your work so um Talk about that a little bit. I mean, is, is it as simple as you know taking the the train down from Yonkers or going on these long walks into the Bronx and exploring the city? That I mean, it seems like that must have been part of the formation of of that in you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a huge that was a huge formative influence, and and just the sense of the sense of freedom and the sense of liberation that that I felt, you know going down to New York and, and, you know, then beginning to spend time in, in the village and, you know, um, in some cases, uh, you know, introducing friends to, to the city um, who hadn't spent that much time there. Um, <clears throat> my best friend and I started to, started to go down pretty much every week. you know, once, uh, once he got his driver's license and, you know, uh, We we began to meet people in New York, um, get to know, you know, people who'd grown up there. So I think, uh, you know, it it represented this certain, a certain kind of escape for me, a certain type of freedom. But, you know, I, it's not, I'm not, I I don't consider myself ultimately an urban person. And that's part of why I did move to New Hampshire um, to sort of get away from, to get away from that. And yet i like having access to cities, you know. I like that the first feeling of of being in the city after not having been there for a while. It's kind of like the first cup of coffee in the morning, or you know, <laughs> it's like the first hit off some drug. Yeah, <laughs> you I was going to
0: say, like it's like the first adrenaline shot to your sternum, you know.
1: Yeah, you know, but you, you, I think it's better if you if you've got your your tolerance, you haven't raised your tolerance, or you know or lowered your tolerance, uh, you know, where, where you can sort of see it with fresh eyes and, and, you know, make that transition, not just fresh eyes, but all of your senses, you know, because it's, it can be a sort of a sensory overload experience. I mean, uh, I can still remember, you know, getting, uh, I traveled to, to India a few years ago and flew into New Delhi and, uh,
0: Was this just vacation?
1: This was just, you know, just travel, just travel for the sake of travel. I, I had a friend who uh, had done a lot of traveling, and we had always um, talked about doing a trip together. And so, you know, the the, the circumstances uh, came together, and uh, you know, so I met him in in India. Any kind and of, I can still
0: any yeah, kind of like ashram experience. it was it was there a spiritual element?
1: No, I mean I did um, I did do some yoga there, and uh, you know just it's inseparable um, from the spiritual side of things, and you don't just go to do yoga <laughs> for a good workout um, or maybe. But I didn't encounter that, you know. I encountered a, a, a you know a sort of a a full full blown spiritual experience the instructor was you know sort of going through everything and and connecting it with with hinduism and so uh but no it was, it was more just uh just for the experience i mean it was it, it was a place that I'd, had always loomed large in my imagination i guess um, and uh <clears throat> you know i i i read uh, one of my favorite books is midnight's children by rush Rushdie. yeah And, uh, so it was a, you know, it was a chance to, to sort of experience it firsthand. And I would love to go back, you know, but I can still remember that moment of, of setting foot in Delhi. And it was like, you know, it really made New York seem pretty chill in comparison. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this is a whole other, this is to the third power or something, you know, um,
0: Well, just like the driving. I mean, I haven't been there, but like, just like I've seen, you know, seen documentaries and seen footage, and you know, it's it's definitely vibrant. But there's a lot going on, and uh, I feel like there, I I feel like there are places you can go. I think of like Western Europe or Australia, New Zealand, uh, that are obviously a lot less exotic than dropping into Delhi after being in New Hampshire. You know, like that's a big shift.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Right, exactly. With a little bit of Amsterdam in between on the stopover. But, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it's, you know, it, it was really, uh, I don't know, it changes your, your whole sort of biochemistry, I guess, you know, uh, your rhythms, you start to, to, you know, move in synchronicity or, or, you know, move differently, uh, on the streets, just, uh, you know, having to be aware of, of, you know, cars and bicycles and motorbikes. And, you know, there's a horse in the middle of the street at one point, um, (laughs) you know, um, so, so that's, that's part of what I really dig about cities is that, that initial rush that you get, but, but then I really, I need mountains. I need, you know, uh, woods, um, and, you know, I'm probably in some ways, I'm probably going back to that idyllic backyard I was in say. Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. That is, is probably like a, a tenth of the size that I remember, it, if that. But
0: Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, when I think of back to my childhood in uh, suburban Milwaukee, like I've been back there, it's been a long time, but I remember going back when I was like 18, 19 years old and how much smaller everything was. Than I had remembered yep. it because when you're when you're four years old the scale is completely different you know like I remember these trees as being gigantic and these streets as being so long and they just weren't and the, and the houses were smaller <laughs> everything was
1: smaller, yeah you know exactly yeah and I, I have uh, I know you have a you have a two year old now
0: two and a half yeah
1: two and a half yeah so yeah my daughter is seven and and she was born here in New Hampshire <clears throat> and I find myself thinking about about that all the time sort of. Imagining her coming back here as an adult and having that experience and, and trying to figure out what this landscape looks like through her eyes as a kid and, you know, wanting to, wanting to be able to see for, for a moment through that perspective and, you know, um, because it's it's beautiful where we are, but you know, to her, it must. It, I, I feel like sometimes it must just be like the wilderness, you know?
0: Yeah, it's like Narnia. Exactly.
1: Um, <laughs> she definitely went through her Narnia phase. Yeah,
0: as we all do, right? Or most of us. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get a chance to ask about your mom, and I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to overlook that lest she be listening or something. I'd feel bad, but I also am <laughs> interested to know since we've talked about your dad and what he did and everything, like what about your mother? Like, what was <laughs>
1: my mom is is also a, a big reader um and uh you know a, a really great reader and she's the she is definitely whatever sort of um neatness um i do possess and sort of you know um whatever qualities of tidiness i have and you know i do have that streak and uh so that's that's her doing um she is uh What she's a social worker. Um, For a long time, she was a single parent raising my brother and I and uh, doing that commute down to New York, working as a legal secretary and, uh, you know, being way overqualified for for that type of thing. I mean, you know, she's uh, much better suited doing what she's doing now. Um, So this is, uh, again, sort of a... A, a renaissance for her a, a, an opportunity to she got remarried as well and so she went back to school and and got her social work degree um a few years ago and and now she she sees clients in a in a private practice and uh so what else can i tell you about her she's also she she loves ballet um ballet dancing and you know one of her childhood aspirations was to become a dancer and her parents didn't support that. Um, you know, they sort of pressured her to go to college and take that route. And so now she's, she's gone back to dancing and she, she got my daughter into it, <laughs> um, big time. And it's, it's taken hold. So my daughter now dances a couple of times a week and, uh, that's my mom.
0: Wow. So, okay. So when you're talking about ballet, like we're talking like intense, like, uh, what was that movie? Black Swan type ballet? Where you?
1: Yeah. I still haven't seen that movie. I, I, which I have to, I've got to see it. Um, but hopefully not that I can remember. (laughs) I can remember when that movie came out, you know, my daughter, uh, was, she was really into Swan Lake at that point. And so, you know, I first first heard the name, I was like, Oh wow, this is gonna be a, a ballet movie that, you know, Ella and Daddy can both get into and then I <laughs> no. saw the previews <laughs> and it was like, Okay, and in twenty years we can, you know, go and have a father daughter date and see <laughs> this movie. Yeah, no. There's like
0: great. yeah, like Natalie Portman and uh, Mila Kunis wind up hooking up at one point. I don't know if it'd be the greatest father daughter movie. It reminds yeah. me. It reminds me of when I took my family. Like I, it was like a Christmas day, and I got to pick the movie, and so like I picked Monsters Ball. This was years ago.
1: Right, right. There's like
0: there's like an 11 minute sex scene without music. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, and it's like really graphic, and I just remember look, looking down the row. Uh, at like my family's faces and like the flickering like movie light was you know sort of a funny memory. Oh man! And I, and I have not gotten to pick the movie since. By the way,
1: no, that was it. Huh? That was it.
0: I screwed up. Um, so anyhow, but you know, let's get into because I know you've worked some interesting jobs, and I want to get to them before you know we finish up. Yeah, so talk about being. Uh, what was it? You you've worked in psychiatric hospitals? Is that
1: right? Uh, yeah, uh, mainly in one hospital um and then another one briefly. Uh yeah, so there there was a, a you know sort of a strange phase of of my life. Uh I was in grad school here and uh it turned out were the MFA was just coming into being, just coming together at UNH, University of New Hampshire, um, and so it took them an extra year, and so I had this extra year of of sort of downtime where I was, you know, nominally enrolled as a, as a student, but not really taking classes, and so I really needed to get a job, and I'd heard about this this hospital through a, a friend of a friend and so you know i I applied there, and they actually hired me on the basis of of the fact that I had taught high school um and, you know to to work in the adolescent unit there um and so that's that's kind of where i started out and they they had uh, a few different units there um and so i you know I really started on the adolescent wing but um they didn't, the biggest staffing needs were on the units with developmentally delayed and disabled patients. Uh, they had a kid's unit and, and then an adult unit or young adult unit um, that kind of came into being after while I was there. And so I wound up there part time, you know, on and off, uh, but I was there for about five or six years. Um, and, uh, yeah, it really, you know, was a profound experience. So what do you I mean, give me, like,
0: paint a picture. What do you, what were you actually doing on a day-to-day basis with these patients?
1: Well, so it really varied from unit to unit. So, for example, on the adolescent unit, a lot of times it would involve running groups of one sort or another, which could be anything from, you know, making a collage to, you know, playing some sort of role-playing game. Um you know, to, to playing volleyball or, or capture the flag, you know. Um, and uh, so and then, you know, it, it would be totally different, though, working with, say, um, on the, you know, the developmental disabilities unit where a lot of the patients would require one-to-one attention, Um, So you would be you would be given a patient at the at the beginning of the shift. And basically, you know, you would you would have to be within arm's length of that person for the next eight hours and until they went to sleep. And in some cases, after they went to sleep and, you know, within that, the the full gamut, you know, of, of possibilities, depending on what their what their situation was, what their issue was, whether they were self harming whether they were harming others
0: okay yeah because i was going to ask you like you have to be within arm's length it's because these people might hurt themselves or hurt others
1: it's exactly right yeah so what now what about what about fear
0: like are any of these people strong enough to harm you (laughs) many of them so what so what are you doing like do you have self-defense training do you have like a taser
1: well no no definitely chasing would be strongly frowned upon um There were, uh, you know, what's what's called uh, CPI, which is uh, sort of, you know, um, nonviolent intervention, basically crisis prevention intervention. I could I could do a whole training unit here for you. But basically, um, you know, we were we were trained to, uh, you know, to do holds if necessary. Um, using, you know, never, never by yourself, you would always be with somebody else. And that's the thing about the, the units where, you know, there were, um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, you would typically have enough staff so that you could safely try to, you know, to, to prevent a situation from, from flaring up and so that you could, you know, you, you have could like hold-
0: walkie talkie or anything or like, or is it just enough people with an earshot that you could just like holler out?
1: No, I mean, walkie talkies were always an issue. They were always getting broken or lost or taken home by accident. But yeah, I mean, ideally, everyone had a walkie talkie. Um, Certainly, if you were going outside with patients, you would you would always take a a walkie talkie.
0: Um, I used to love walkie talkies when I was a kid. Those are you know, I thought they were the coolest thing ever.
1: You, you know, I never had them as a kid and then, you know, but using them on the job, I mean, you really needed them sometimes. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, it, it, it did make things feel safer in certain instances.
0: Was there a code word or something when stuff was going really bad? Was it like, you know, like red alert or, you know, did you have, like-
1: yeah, no, they had different, different codes for different things. And, You know, typically the the patients, particularly the ones who were there for an extended period of time, they would know, they would figure out, you know, uh, here is an announcement. Uh, I think it was the name of a doctor at one point and, you know, uh, a fabricated name. But, of course, you know, when this doctor was summoned, the staff would would suddenly, you know, uh, a couple of staff members from every unit would, would, you know, rush off the hallway. So it was fairly obvious you know, um that that it was a code. What I think the, I mean What was the doctor's yeah. name? Do you remember? I can't remember now. I think it was there was doctor uh, maybe some color. Um but
0: uh And then what did what did these like when you say that you were taught how to do certain holds, like we is this like a like a full Nelson crab type situation? <laughs>
1: like, I mean what does they, it look like? It looks like uh what does it look like? I mean, the idea was, was to sort of keep the, keep the person from hurting themselves or being able to hurt themselves and hurt somebody else, to sort of, you know, temporarily take away their, their ability to do that without, without sort of hurting them and without, you know, um, putting them at risk of, of some sort of a, you know, um, uh, some sort of a, a medical situation, particularly because you never know if somebody has a heart condition or if they, you know, are susceptible, um, to, to, you know, pressure in certain parts of their body. So, I mean, they, they, one thing the hospital was really, uh, was really amazing about was that they were really working to, to phase out these, these, you know, these holds completely. Um, and to make them, did you ever have to do one? Did I ever have to do one? I, I mean, there were times that I would do several on any given day. I mean, oh, wow. they were they were very common um, to the point where, you know, it it's, it's sort of, you know, it became you almost had to fight an instinct to to jump into that mode, you know, and to 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 not sort of, you know, um, prematurely um, put somebody into a, into a hold, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be the, the last resort. And I think, you know, m- the people who are working there, the staff were, were uh, for the most part, were really uh, amazing individuals and, and thoughtful, caring, compassionate individuals. But it's tough when you, when you are sort of, you know, constantly uh Having to be vigilant, you know, is this person, you know, sort of just monitoring that fine line between sort of, you know, this person is going to hurt somebody, is going to hit somebody or, or, you know, this person can can still be talked out of this situation, can still be, you know, is still open to communication and negotiation and that kind of thing. Mm.
0: So, um, sort of Kesey esque, like Ken Kesey. Didn't he work in a mental hospital too? Like it feels.
1: I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> so I was, I
0: mean, so did, did, did this, like, work period of your life coincide with, like, heavy, like, mushroom intake or anything? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have a, a magic bus or, or, you know, of any sort. <laughs> Not yet. So, yeah, I still have yet to, to look forward to that, right? I did my Kerouac phase. My Keezy phase is <laughs> yet to come.
0: <clears throat> but more seriously, like, you know, when you look at it... Um, in the rearview mirror, uh, do you look at the experience and can, and can you see ways in which it might've informed you as a writer and an artist, you know, like
1: what? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, and just as a person, I mean, I think sort of, it it forced me to redefine just some of the most basic things about what it means to be a a person and, and what's, quote unquote normal, I mean I think I always had my doubts about you know about the whole concept of the normal, but there were more abstract intellectual doubts, I guess um, but sort of you know um, really um, really widening my sense of what it means to be to be human and to be an individual and to you know, um, to communicate. I mean, was working quite often with, with people who didn't speak, um, who had other ways of communicating. And so sort of trying to find ways to, to connect with them. Um, that's good training for a writer. It is absolutely. Yeah. It was like this amazing constraint. (laughs) It's like, you know, sort of, you know, uh, Okay, you don't have you don't have words, <laughs> so what what's left? How are you going to, you know? Or or, you know, there were a lot of patients who communicated with uh, much more readily if you used two or three word sentences. So that becomes a kind of a you know, it's almost like writing a poem. It's I was like, going to say it's like a comp- it's a
0: compression exercise.
1: Absolutely, it's like okay, what is this sentence really about? <laughs> you know. Well, and it, makes, um, it makes
0: you cut to the chase. I mean, for God's sakes, you got three words to get it out. It's like, it's uh, it's like uh, Twitter times, whatever. I'm trying to do the math. What is it? A <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Yep. <laughs> so exactly. Like, Twitter times like 52, I think.
1: Exactly. And, and no more hashtagging, forget about the hashtag. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. And like, uh, you know, now you're teaching and, what was I, I think I was reading a, an, an email exchange we had and you were saying that your entire creative writing department got like picked up and moved to a different university, like intact. Is that true?
1: Yeah, that's uh, the crazy truth. Um, I was, so I was at this this tiny, tiny school called Chester College of New England, which was really a beautiful, wonderful place. Um, and uh, <clears throat> uh, sort of coming back again to the the theme of of you know the the rural versus the city it was it was a very rural place i mean it was uh just down the road from robert frost's farm to give you a a sort of a point of reference and uh i didn't even so, know he had i didn't even know he had a farm but now i know he had a couple of them actually <laughs> wow he actually I, I from what i remember i did the tour there years ago and from what i remember he sort of took over this farm in order to improve his his poetry in part um and and to make it more authentic uh you know some of the some of the uh farming stuff that he was writing about
0: just to like connect with the land and stuff
1: i think so yeah um i was gonna say because like a
0: a poet who owns two farms that's pretty good for a poet these days (laughs) you know poetry
1: yeah, I think he inherited one from his uh, uh, from his in laws or something like that. But either way, two farms, right? That's that's a lot of farm. And,
0: and, and you know, I guess are, the distinction is, you know, were they working farms? Did he actually was it Were they actually yielding crops and stuff, or was it just kind of like a what do you call it when you have like a country farm or a gentleman farmer? You know, a
1: gentleman farmer, right? Right. I want to be a. Yeah. I want
0: to be a gentleman farmer. I just want to like have the farm and. <laughs> maybe have like a few uh like like one cow and like a couple of pigs as like pets, you know, just to like have them around. That would be good.
1: Totally. Totally. That's 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 a good balance right there. <laughs> I zoom you know, we we belong to a CSA here and I sort of feel like that, you What's know.
0: What's that? What's the
1: CSA? Uh community supported agriculture.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So it's it's kind of a, you know, um sort of a, a farm collective and you know uh, any time i want to volunteer there and just you know spend an afternoon they're they're like hey yeah great you know and uh every time we go to do fa- weekly weekly farm pickup my daughter will will feed the chickens you know this has become our our ritual there so you know it's 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 gentlemanly farming
0: yeah it sounds kind of sounds Id- idyllic
1: yeah it's it's pretty sweet actually it's pretty sweet um, so uh yeah so Chester coming back to that situation um, for one reason or another basically the the school uh wasn't well supported by the the highest administration there and um so my my department chairperson monica bilson um, basically salvaged our department she she thought we had a good thing going both in terms of the faculty and the students um and the you know the curriculum that we had developed and so she kind of shopped us around basically and it turned out that the new hampshire institute of art was looking uh they they were forming a, a creative writing program and and here we were. It was a match a match made in heaven, you know.
0: Wow. I've never even heard of that, where like a university department sort of like, so, you know, it's almost like you guys became free agents or something and
1: got, got signed. <laughs> I don't want to make it seem for other departments as if this is a good plan. I mean, <laughs> I don't... It'd be, Kind of funny to, to see a bunch of departments out there, you know, department available on, on Craigslist or <laughs> right. something, you know.
0: <laughs> well, at least you guys landed somewhere. I mean it could have just been disbanded, you know. Who knows?
1: That's really the way it was looking. Um but yeah, we so we sort of, you know, migrated uh twenty-eight miles and so here I am back in a city in in Manchester now, which is a city. Um but it's uh yeah it's a good deal. It's a good deal. I, I I love the people I teach with, and my students are awesome and Sounds like they a really good, are.
0: sounds like a good little existence up there in new Hampshire I'm, I'm sort of a, I have a good visual perception of it. Like I'm seeing you in paradise, so that's good
1: <laughs> I, I may be painting an overly rosy picture, so but
0: <laughs> Now, what about uh, before I let you go, what about I know you're working on a novel, right? It's the desert of Maine.
1: Yeah, um, it's it's still in the early stages, but definitely. Isn't it great
0: when people ask you about a, a novel that you're working on in the early stages?
1: <laughs> it's it, there's nothing <laughs> nothing better than being asked that question, right? <laughs>
0: let's let's visit this messy soup of a uh, you know. That, that's how I feel whenever, even when you're further down the line, it's difficult to talk about. You know, for some.
1: Yep. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's it's tough enough to talk about a short story, right? So. I find that i i keep on uh i keep getting tempted by by short stories on a novel you know I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but it's like you know when you're when you're working on something longer all of a sudden these 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 short stories or shorter prospects start beckoning you you know. Well, it's just, um, they
0: can be finished. There's, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is more visible. You know?
1: Exactly, exactly. So there are all these lights at the ends of all these tunnels that are just like <laughs> and we hope everywhere.
0: That, and we hope that they're not trains, you know? Exactly. <laughs> well, Tim, uh, it's been fun talking with you. And congratulations on the collection and, uh, and the good life up in New Hampshire. And I wish you the best of luck on the novel.
1: Thanks so much, Brad. It's been a blast. I appreciate it.
0: Okay, you guys, there you have it. That is Tim Horvath. Go get his new story collection. It's called Understories, and it's available now from Bellevue Literary Press. You can find Tim online at timhorvath.com. He's on Facebook, and his Twitter handle is at Tim underscore Horvath. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, hey, don't forget to rate and review... This podcast over at iTunes, please do that. Give it a nice rating, write a nice little review. It takes two minutes and it really does help the cause. Don't forget to get the app, the official Other People app, available free of charge for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program and to access the full archives, etc. So go get it. Uh, Okay, I hope you're well. If you went to AWP uh, and you're exhausted, you are depleted, You are in the fetal position. You are hydrating. I hope you get uh, some good rest. I hope you catch up on sleep. I hope that Daylight Savings isn't messing with your circadian rhythms too profoundly. And I hope that you are not judging me silently for not having gone. Please don't judge me silently. And please remember that uh, Proust was known for his lavish over tipping of service industry professionals. And that Jack Kerouac died. On october twenty first, nineteen sixty nine. That is it for now folks. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate it. And I will be I will be back. I shall return uh, in just a few days on Sunday, the day of the Lord, with another episode just for you. It's a good one. It's a good one. I'll give you a hint. Or actually you know, actually I won't give you a hint. I'm not gonna do it. I'm just gonna make you live with the mystery. <laughs>